The cream rises to the top. If you build it, they will come. Content is king, and so on. We've heard all the cliches, but the problem is they are totally wrong. Even the best idea, product or project will fall flat if it isn't communicated effectively. On the Figures or Speech podcasts, hosts Tammy Palazzo and Tim Wickstrom talk to a wide range of amazingly successful executives, business owners, and leaders about how learning to communicate changed their lives and their fortunes. Every episode gives us stories we can emulate and lessons we can follow. Hi, Jen. Thank you so much for being on the show. For our listeners who aren't already familiar with the Institute of Internal Communication and your work as chief executive, can you give us just the Cliff Notes version of your background and really specifically tell us about your story and how you came to the place you are today and the role that plays into your being the chief executive at the Institute of Internal Communication? Sure. And first of all, thank you very much for having me on your show. It's great to be part of it. So I think the first thing was a a kind of a brief introduction of what the Institute of Internal Communication is all about. So I'll do that really, really briefly. So we are the only professional membership body that's dedicated to representing the profession of internal communication. Those people that are tasked with how organizations really talk to their employees. So we're here really to help people feel that they've got confidence, passion, that their career matters. And we do that through lots and lots of different activities. I'm sure we can get a little bit more into the depths of internal communication. But I think, come back to your first question about a little bit about my background and my story and how I got to become chief executive of the IOIC. So for me, growing up, education was never really my thing. I did okay. You know, I tried to make the best of it, but academia was never an area I felt that suited me. and I never really excelled. I remember my family always described me as, she's the one with the personality. (laughs) (laughs) But I always tried my best. But as a brain, I liked logic, but I really actually then tried to work out what my path was. And that for me wasn't always easy because I didn't see myself naturally going towards being whether it was finance or a doctor or a lawyer, which was perhaps the chosen careers for my generation. So I sort of went through the realms of of study, but never really did that well, never went to a great institution, never had something that really stood out on my CV. So I was like, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to make myself stand out from the crowd, which is sometimes difficult. So I sort of came out of that sort of a bit bewildered and thought, well, and everyone said, we should be in sales, sales, because you talk a lot. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'll take that. I do like to talk a lot. are obviously salespeople. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If you can talk a lot, that's where you should go. You should be in sales. So then I sort of plodded along and I sort of thought, well, I'll try. I found myself in the publishing industry, admittedly on the sales side to start with, but I didn't really enjoy that sales part, part of it as well. That sort of, going after the money and getting the deal. I mean, we all want to make money, but I wanted to do something that made me feel that my passions were being met. So I sort of plodded along through that and found myself, I was quite good then really at building relationships. And I guess because I was a bit of a talker and chatty Cathy is that, you know, might have been referred to. (laughs) I was happily always going into meetings and building relationships with people, working out what was on their agenda, what mattered to them and and how I could help and what that really looked like. And before I knew it, I kind of got in a position where I built really good relationships with senior leaders, which was kind of the real key, really, is to get that likability factor. I mean, there's a stat that says, actually, that 86% of our response is from the emotional part of our brain. You can be the most rational person in the world. You can speak to someone on the most rational level. But if they don't emotionally connect with you, then you're always going to really struggle. So I guess that was my gift that I could kind of do. And I presented a little bit of rationality with a little bit of likability hmm. and sort of pushed my ideas forward. And I managed to actually get up the sort of director train by about the age of 29. I made it onto a director level, which I think was quite, wow. I felt like quite without a really strong academic C- CV, I found myself quite pleased with myself at the age of 29, having a sure. director job title. And then I found myself moving into this professional membership world, which was the publishing industry I started in, Whereas professional membership bodies and what we do here at the Institute of Internal Communication, essentially what you're doing is saying to people who've chosen a career path, whether that be at that time it was market researchers who felt, you know, very downtrodden because they're just the people with the clipboards. Uh, And that's how people felt that it was perceived. And what you have this job to do is actually go and make people feel like what they do matters. And actually your job is to champion people's careers and to have pride 
and to walk into something. So no, it's a really important skill and it's a really important thing that I do because I think other sort of traditional professions, for want of a better phrase, everyone felt that they got the sort of accolades and the pride, whereas those people doing those other careers didn't really have it. So I really found this joy actually in becoming a voice for others and actually becoming somebody that said, I'm going to do everything in my power to make, to shout out loud about what you do so that you can walk in with your head held a little bit higher to any meeting and communicate and say, actually, you know what, I'm really important. So I, I did that in the market research industry and then I found this I did a little stint in PR as well. So I thought, oh, maybe a chatty Cathy might be in this good route as well. But actually, I came back to, um, I can make it to what too. actually really matters. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I stumbled upon this, this role where I had a background in membership bodies and publishing and communications to actually be a leader for people that worked in internal communication. And it was sort of a perfect storm. You know, not only are you here talking about making people matter and feel valued and helping people along their careers and spending time with things, but I'm actually championing the importance of communication and actually how people speak to people and how people feel and actually championing to say that communicators are absolutely vital in business. Everything we do is rooted in communication. Everything we're about, it sets the scene for everything. So to actually pull all of those strands together and, and find this role where I've now been leading the IYC for come on about two years now it's been a sort of a wonderful journey but not one that I necessarily sat out as a sort of young adult I can say that's what I want to do but we, we, we arrived somewhere that's an amazing story Jen and I think it it is consistent with a lot of our stories right there's this idea that when we are in high school or when we're in college that we have this clear career path and that it should have this linear pathway to wherever we start and wherever we're going to end up. And I always think about this because I've had a similar journey as you have in that I went to school for journalism and ended up working in publishing. And now I own a communications skills technology company, which is completely contradictory to anything I would have ever expected. But Oh, this was on your roadmap. You know it was oh, on totally your totally on my roadmap, yes. When I was seven and I drew out my life, at this age, I absolutely saw myself to be in this place. I think it's really interesting. And I have a 17-year-old son and we were this morning, very this very morning, we were on the train coming into New York City and we were having a conversation about what he's going to do because he's looking at colleges now and he's going to be a senior in high school. And he said, I just don't know. Like I've been trying to figure out what I might do because he knows he wants to be an engineering student and he's trying to figure out what he might do with that. He doesn't have a clue. Like he has no idea where the pathway is going to take him. And I certainly don't have an idea where the pathway is going to take him. So I love the fact that you had this sort of zigzaggy approach to where you landed and I'm sure you've got plenty of career in front of you and who knows where it's going to end up. And I think it's just, it's counterintuitive because so many people think they should have this linear pathway. And, and I think all three of us have had a very similar sure. experience there and that we didn't, we didn't end up anywhere where we thought we were going to go. And I, <laughs> I think that's a great place to be. No, I just mean at the age of seven, I thought I wanted to be a dancer. That was never <laughs> going to work out for me. <laughs> I will say at the age of seven, I did want to tap dance. That was sort of my whole, there you go. You my whole aspiration in life. And my mother would not get me tap dancing lessons. And she was probably very insightful and not wasting yeah. time. I can't subscribe to the tap dancing part, but I certainly wanted to be an artist and draw. That much I'll give you. I got to say, there's, it's an interesting commonality here. So about the same age, Jen, that you were describing around 30, no, I was not a director, but at the same time was just coming into this world of figuring out what I am really good at. It was a big transition time for me. And what happened out of that for me was that I found that value in being able to communicate well far above and beyond the technical skills. I had a great job working in corporate America. I could tactically manage my team. I could do all the things necessary, except when it came to influencing and communicating. The second I had to present or speak in front of anybody above me, my directors, my managers, VPs, 
frozen. Frozen as solid as a popsicle in Siberia. It was no way I was going to be able to make it through that one. I was just done. Permafrost, if you will. And it's really interesting to figure out once you recognize those things that make us appear or be perceived as passionate and confident, that that truly does translate. It translates across the board, not by your work style or industry. But I think it's a little interesting to delve more into IOIC for you in that I think that this idea of how we communicate, it's not just what we're communicating, but how we do it that plays a critical role in internal communication and how that's really been undervalued. It seems to me you've had a great lead in with that to build a really amazing organization here. So how do you feel that the delivery, if you will, the passion and confidence, those skills that we own are undervalued in that area? I think that I think that's a really interesting question. And I've spent a lot of time looking at internal communication and where it's come from and where it's going. And and it feels at the moment that internal communication, it's not where it should be, but it's certainly going through better times than it has. You know, the Institute, for example, not many people know this, but we're going to be celebrating our 70th anniversary next wow. year. Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Look, I wasn't there at the beginning, FYI. <laughs> <laughs> sort of doing the math. <laughs> but it, yeah, but I've been doing a lot of reading recently and looking back over the history. And I've come up with these new phrases of how we describe the importance of internal communication. So IOC was actually born of a post-World War II Britain. When people had lost faith, money was bad, the economy was bad, unionization, all these things were going on in the world, the mining and the industries. And it was actually born at a time that they felt that there was, I think, perhaps a need for organizations to play that clear communication with employees when they didn't understand the world around them to instill that level of confidence and to make them stick with us. So actually, the value and the importance of communication in organizations has been there. But it has been seen historically as very transactional. Mm, yeah. It has been seen as, you know, and the tonality of it was very one way. This is leadership. We are telling you this. This is what is going on. And we're giving you these strikes because this is going on in the economic world, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, what I think is really important is as well, actually, how what happens in the communication in the workplace has actually a lot to do with actually our social well-being. And I think that that's what's really becoming more important recently. I talk now about the power of internal communication, yes, for business and economy, but also for society and societal well-being. And I think that those issues are coming more and more to the fore. And it's probably been more recent in the last 10 years. I think where internal communication did really well, there was a big report in the UK that was launched by the government in 2009 that essentially said that if you have engaged workforces, if people feel connected, if they feel valued, if they understand their role and, and someone simply says the word, thank you, they're more likely to be motivated. And if they're more motivated, they're more productive, which is more better for business. Right. And there was absolutely a big, big change. And I think we've been riding that way for the last 10 years. And we've just slowly seen it creep and creep and creep up. People don't realize that that's history that exists. And I think that now we're also in a stage where organizations realize that reputation, emotions can't be controlled by, this is what we say, the communication measures that were, or channels, I guess, that were once there. Actually, we talk a lot more now. We're much more open. Actually, how someone feels and how they're communicated to it is not something that organizations can hide. So they have, a, I think, a more pressurized responsibility. Do I think, though, on the same sense, organizations are taking it more seriously? Absolutely. But do I think we've got a long way to go? Absolutely. You know, I talk to a lot of my members who are communicators for a living, and they struggle in rooms to have confidence to say, well, how are we going to say that to employees? That's really important. When someone in finance says, oh, we can't afford that or actually the profit more important. That's a great example. I'd like to dive into that a little more. You said they struggle with that aspect of it. I want to get a little tactical to figure out what are some of the challenges you're hearing from folks. And just as you said, you can't ignore the emotional context around the communication. It's, it's there whether you like it or not, and we have to be able to manage it. What are some of the challenges you're hearing from your members on how they're trying to communicate more effectively, more passionate and more confidently. And so what are their challenges and what are they doing to try to solve it today? How do they try to navigate those waters? I think the challenges are about getting the importance of communication into a strategic context. 
because actually when you're trying to push the value of something, particularly when, I mean, has anybody ever heard of the iceberg of, of ignorance, which is a great... I use an iceberg analogy, but I don't know that I've yeah. worked ignorance into yeah, it, but I'd love there. to hear more. <laughs> yeah, it's out there. You can just Google it. It's fantastic. And what it shows, actually, is the iceberg of ignorance is that you've got layers of, of people in organizations that know what the problems are. And when you get to the top, only 4% of leaders actually know what the problems are in the organization. Oh, interesting. Oh, that's fantastic. So there's a lot of value in communicators and where they can and deal and say, actually, you need to listen to this because if you don't fix what you don't know, I'm going to tell you about it and be the voice of the employee, then the businesses aren't going to move forward. But the challenges still exist in our profession is confidence. Time and time and time again, I sit with communicators or people in that side of things because everyone thinks they're a communicator. Obviously, communication can be quite subjective in sure tone and style, and everyone thinks that they know how to do it better. But actually showing why there's best practice approaches to it can sometimes can be hard and therefore having confidence in our own abilities and confidence in our own voice when we're not necessarily dealing with accounts or finances or legals or right or wrong. You know, I remember somebody saying to me once, my mentee, well, there's no right and wrong in communication, but there is in finance. And I fundamentally disagree with that. There is a right and a wrong. So being able to sit there and have that confidence to challenge back and to use our own voices, I think is still a challenge for us. So that's why the work of us IOIC is to try and elevate the importance of communication to business so that it gives our members that confidence to walk into an organization and challenge and say no and say why. But also as well on the flip side, the things that we need to be doing in our own skill set, and I say this a lot as well, is we need to take that and perhaps create a strategic narrative of our own and use that strategic language, and then also find out what's on other people's minds, build relationships. Empathy is a great skill. Listening yeah. is a really, really great skill as well. Being able to listen rather than going in and take the time and have patience and perseverance. And sometimes we get our knockbacks, but you just have to keep going. And I think that's a struggle for some people. I think that's a struggle for a lot of us. But in our profession, that's probably one that we deal with a lot. How we overcome that is obviously what I'm trying to help in my role at IOIC. I'm intrigued by where you're going, and I want to introduce another concept here. And I don't know how much this is true in the UK, but certainly here, there is a big shift in the workplace. People are no longer co-located in the same place. There's a different culture that's developed in the workplace. And everything that you've been talking about in terms of how the internal communications plays a role in making people feel good, making people feel valued. What I've noticed, and certainly in the work that we've done over the years, is that there's a different dynamic that's happening in the workplace with people not being co-located. So what happens is that you have people who may be in a headquarters office or in a remote office, or then you've got people who are working from home or working from a coffee shop or some other place how do you think that's changed for the person or the people who are responsible for engaging the workforce in keeping them connected to the organization? Do you think that there's been a shift in what they need to do or how they need to do it with the more common dispersed workplace? That is one of the key tactical challenges that we definitely have in the internal communication. We call them remote workers, and we also call them remote or remote remote. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the world of work, as you say, is changing. Actually, context and environment is changing. You always have people that are out there, whether it's your postman to your construction workers that are not necessarily working in the typical head office corporate environment. And there's a lot of this, this we talk about now about values and how we get people to live by values and by purpose and how we can transcend that into those audiences it is very challenging. And it's actually a topic we're featuring in our next magazine. Oh, trying to come up with oh, some um, um, practical ideas around it. There's a channel tactic because though some people are remote and they don't, they don't actually even have work email or they might be on a contract or they might work in the client's environment so they're living the client's values. Or they might be working from home and then and feel that actually their context for work is not within the corporate values. So how do we achieve that? How do we overcome that? And I think that there's another challenge that plays into it. There's tactical things we can do. We've seen the rise of enterprise social networks as seeing as perhaps one of the tactical 
practical things that we can do to help disperse some of that by giving something using the mobile, using the phone, using these environments as a place where people can get connected to their workforce and what is going on. Is the adoption of that great? Not always, because I think it's what we think we want people to do. But actually, some of those people have habits and motivations that are outside of that. So actually, how do we find other ways of connecting with them? And that's when we come, I think, to another one of our, our challenges, which is, doesn't make it easy for us, is that line manager. It's actually line manager communication. And because actually the, our line manager and someone says to us, whether it's our site supervisor, whether it's someone we have a one-to-one with when we meet them on the road, whether it's how leaders go out and be visible or go out and connect or do all those sorts of things, it's how do we get those people to be better communicators? And how do we get them to help people who are remote understand that what is actually really going on and break it down in a language that people can feel they can connect to? Because a newsletter is only going to do so much. Well, that's true. I mean, so it's I, definitely I, you know, a challenge. Yeah, I got to jump in on that one part. We always do this little exercise to illustrate how the written word is dramatically different based off the kind of the mood you're in when you read it. It's this little line that we write out and it says, I didn't say you stole my car. And each word has its own inflection point, right? So we'll have mm-hmm. a group ask them, how many meetings are there in this sentence? Just to illustrate that written word, it doesn't convey, it's never a guaranteed capture of the message that's intended. It's going to hopefully hit the mark, but not always, because depending on what mood you're in and your experience of the day, you're going to use different words or highlight specific words more so than others. And it takes me back to something that you mentioned earlier. You were talking about tone of voice, pace of speech, and that's the flip side of it, right? There's the tactical side, the messaging side. What is it that I'm trying to communicate? And then we talk about this diverse workforce that is not, you know, it's a remote workforce, sometimes contract and many different avenues. And you have line managers out there communicating a message. How do you tackle that problem of the delivery? So, you know, for example, what we focus on is that side of it, right? When we think about passion and confidence, it's the ability to use your skills, the tools that you already have built inside of you and to use them more effectively. Uh, And they are just that, they're tools. They are muscles that we try to create new muscle memory around. How do you solve that now with your organization and your members? They've got the message, they know what they need to communicate, they understand the problems. How do you help them make sure that the message is delivered in a way that makes it hit the mark that they intend for it to hit, which is controlling the pace that they're going at, their use of filler words, do they practice and send you videos? What sort of methodology do you help them to get through that side of it? I think there's lots of practical things that you can do with communication professionals and internal communicators who are our members that that take that seriously. We do often, you know, presentation skills, language, we give them courses on training on all these really, really important things about you know, how to organize an event, how to deliver a speech, how to actually deliver all these kinds of things. And there's practical things as well that we advise or we suggest when you're thinking about a massive rollout in an organization, a campaign of some kind. Because essentially, when you're sending out a communication, whatever format you want someone to think, feel or do, and you have to think that through. So a lot of the things that we talk a lot about is actually facilitation skills, listening skills. They're really, really important. How can you go out into the workplace and actually rather than impose, there's a trend often when things are happening in organizations to give line managers toolkits or give them scripts and say, when you have your team meeting, read from this script. And then some line managers might get that script and go, well, I don't get it. It doesn't agree with me. I don't actually like the words. So they'll say it the way they feel like saying it, which might not actually resonate to the tone that you're trying to create. And that then then means your message lands differently. There might be others that really understand it. So actually, one of the things we talk about is actually bringing line manager or people into decisions or into that early stages. So when you're thinking about a change program or you're thinking about a campaign or you're thinking about something you want to do is rather than just asking them to relay a message, actually come into the beginning point of how that message is crafted. And actually give them time to understand why things are being done. Because sometimes we don't like things, but that's okay if we understand them. 
Yes. So it's actually doing more of that time to workshop so that when it is delivered in the end, that person can use their language or their way of doing things that's going to work well with that end audience. That perhaps when you're five, ten, you know, chains of command away from, you don't necessarily understand their context. So how can we bring them in to actually then give them a voice? But how we say things in our own personal way and having personality and being your true self is really important of the way something comes across. But they're only going to do that better if they're in earlier as part of that process. I agree. I think being a part of the solution, it just brings buy-in, right? If I can contribute and I can help formulate an outcome here and I have a voice, even if we don't agree on all of our perspectives or recommendations, just like you said, as long as I know why and I can play a role in that, I think that that's incredibly important, specifically around change management. You mentioned that. That's such a critical area where as an organization, if they're taking a shift or moving along differently, what I have found happened in the past is this communication strategy is put together and structured and set up. And then when it comes to execution, that's where it falls apart. I have the best of intentions of reading from the script, hitting these bulleted points, and more times than not, what we find happens is the feedback from the teams that are being communicated to, ah, you know, I just didn't buy into that. They didn't give me confidence that this was a great move. It's not so much that I agreed or disagreed, but they didn't come across very confident in what is being communicated down. And what we've always done, you know, in the traditional sense, like you said, we bring people into workshops and work with them to help them get more comfortable with that, whether they've been a part of the discussion or not. But the challenge has always been after the workshop's done or whatever session I've had with them, it's one and done, they're gone. And they tend to not have the ability to continue to practice that to get feedback to build their confidence that they are communicating it the way they want. And that's always seems to have been a gap, at least that we experience with clients in our industry. I would totally agree with that gap. I mean, I think that that's something tactically we can do, but I think the challenge, which I say is bigger than the internal communication profession, you know, we are there as that is actually the investment that organizations give to all employees around communication skills. Agreed. Often we don't do enough of that. We, we give someone a responsibility of a management based on perhaps accountability or tasks, but we don't actually create that prerequisite of communication. Or we sort of throw them into line management and say, oh, you've got to go and do all these people in the costume. We don't necessarily give them enough training and confidence and help at the outset. And also we don't perform as manage on it. You know, it can be sometimes not an area that's enough in that appraisal situation. It's like, have you delivered all your projects? Have you saved me enough money? Have you got this task done? Right. You know, we don't do enough around actually the kind of communicators we need in the business. And I think that that's the challenge. There was some research that was done in the UK by the, the Charter Management Institute. And I can't remember the stat exactly, but it did a, some research with, with, manage, with line managers. And I think it was something that only a third of respondents thought they had a responsibility to communicate. Oh, wow. Only a third felt they had the responsibility to communicate. That's yeah. astonishing. So that's a real worry. And like I say, you know, sure. so, that, so I need to give my members the confidence to go in there and say, why should organizations invest in communication training? Not just for us as communicators, because we're born communicators, but all these tens and thousands of other people in your organization that don't have the confidence or the skills. But sometimes that's a hard thing to, to argue about because you can't necessarily always make a direct ROI equation on something of that investment. But we know it's there. That's certainly where we spend all of our thinking these days is really trying to understand what that ROI is. And since we started our business back in 2013, we very closely watched the evolution of how communication is being dealt with in organizations differently, obviously, than you are much more focused on what is the competency level. And how are organizations dealing with the challenges of the workforce that currently exists, the, the younger workforce, the millennial workforce, and certainly the incoming workforce that's coming in with a very different skill set around communication. They're coming in with different behaviors as it relates to communication. They're coming in with different expectations as it relates to communication. And we're really closely watching how organizations are dealing with that because what's happening, as you, I'm sure, know, is that they're being confronted with the fact that their workforce cannot communicate. 
that they are lacking basic, basic skills to do simple things, not necessarily get up in front of a large group of people and make a you know important high stakes presentation, but they struggle with just interacting with their peers, whether it be an email, whether it be you know vocal communication on the telephone, on a web conference, whatever it might be, they simply don't have the skills to articulate themselves. And we see that organizations are beginning to change their attitudes around it. We're seeing that ROI is being measured differently. And, you know, for us, because we're trying to quantify this by, you know, when you use presenter, you're getting scores, you're actually being measured on how you're doing. And it helps an organization begin to see, are we actually making improvement? But we're definitely seeing a change there that there's, it's slow. This is like literally turning the Titanic, right? You're trying to get them to change their <laughs> on things. Since we're going to use iceberg analogies, <laughs> I'll just go with that. <laughs> we don't want to crash into that iceberg of ignorance. But, you know, we're beginning to slowly see a shift there. So I, I hear you. I think ROI is such an important piece of this because it does this idea of soft skills and, and Tim, I think it was you, Tim, that said, you know, I hate that it's called soft skills if they're not soft. I think I want to give you credit for that statement. Because- <laughs> I'm one of many who said it, but I do despise the term soft skills. And I use that word despise heavily. It's more about core skills and I don't have a fix for it, but there's nothing soft about it. I, your number at the beginning, Jen, threw me that 86% that you shared about the emotional element and communication. And I think it's beyond true. I think we as a society and certainly in the workforce underestimate how much we assess each other before they even talk. But then once they start talking, the pathway we go down in our mind of pure judgment, how do I feel about this person? And is this going to work out my trust system, my belief system? And we're constantly doing that. So yeah, I'm a big fan of not saying <laughs> soft skills. It's not soft. It really, it really is it's a core skill. I mean, for you, I'm curious... I have to imagine this comes into play. Do you see a generational shift happening? So that with your members, I don't know what the demographics are, but with your members and with what you're seeing happening in the workplace, are you seeing a generational shift? Are the challenges getting bigger? Is the younger generation approaching it differently? What are you seeing there as it relates to that? I think the challenges are, I don't know if they're getting bigger. I think they're getting more complex. I think, you know, in terms of the generational piece, you know, yes, we have younger generations coming through. I, I can't remember if it's Gen Z, Y. I get confused all the alphabets. But, you know, the younger generation coming through and, yes, they have a different experience of how they consume and communicate. You know, with my generation growing up, we used to write letters, you know, and you'd wait five days and you'd write things in a certain way and the you have patience and, you know, and all that sort of stuff and all that uh-huh. sort of habitual stuff is changing and actually the rise of personal brand and personal perception is really really important to people coming through i think the expectations are changing but also the other thing i think it's interesting is that we've never had so many different generations working true you know yes we have that everyone sort of focuses we need to get the young people but we also have more generations working than ever that have different perceptions, motivations, psychological factors or things that influence them or different expectations. Yeah. I hate the assumption that if they're an older worker, they won't do digital. So we have to give them newspaper. I, I think that's absolutely Agreed. wrong. It's actually, that's not the right assumption that we need. I agree. It's actually about tone and voice and expectation and, and values and all those sorts of things. The values will be slightly different, but actually tools and techniques, you know, we all learn pretty fast. We're all pretty good at that, that, that side of things. So I think that there's a challenge to do more, you know, there are a wealth of communication channels we can all use. But actually, the wealth of emotion, actually, we're more open with our emotion as well. We're more open with our values. We're more transient as well. We move around. It used to be generations ago that you'd get a job out of university and that's it. And, you, and the thing you would do is you would stay there for 40 years. Right. None of us are like that now. No. We move around more. The fight for talent, attraction, making people feel value. But also, we keep changing. You know, we go back to that 
thing we're talking about change programs. I think we need to rebrand the word change because whenever I speak to room of internal communicators, I, the first question I always ask people is, how many people in this room are working on a change slash transformation project? Ninety <laughs> percent of people always put their hands up. Both on a professional so I, and a personal level, by the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think the challenges are more complex. Yes, we have to communicate through more channels. Yes, we have more diverse age ranges. Yes, we have to appeal for talent retraction. We have a more transient. We have the gig economy, zero contract working. Actually, the workplace and all that side of things is changing as well. But actually, fundamentally, we have different things that motivate us, that motivate different uh, younger people. Their motivations might be different to different generations. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we need to spend more time understanding. One of the things we did here at the Institute is we put together sort of a competency framework of what good internal communication looks like. And first thing we always say is understanding the organization. But the second thing that we don't spend enough time on is people and cultural understanding. Because if you really get to underneath that and understand that, actually helps your execution a lot more. At the moment, it's like, let's just put the message in more places. I think that actually, no, we need to think more about how we're saying it. But I think the thing that is certainly the thing that's constant amongst us all is we have, we have, a, we expect more honesty. We expect transparency. We expect people to deliver a level of honesty to us. There was somebody, I can't quote this, but somebody said to me at a talk we did once, as people, as employees, we can handle the truth. We just can't handle lies. Mm. That's, mm, interesting. that's interesting. It's funny, you know, you don't live in the same country as us. And obviously mm. our country is under assault right now as it <laughs> pertains. I'm not going to get political, but as it pertains <laughs> to truth. And, mm. you know, just today there was a whole big uproar over whether or not Google is filtering positive messages about our government. And it's a really interesting moment in time, and I think this is a global issue. I don't think it's a US-only issue, but it's a really interesting moment in time because we have access to so much information. And I don't frankly believe that Google has, is, is filtering out positive messages about our president, but we do have the ability to get under the hood much more quickly, certainly, than we did 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And that need for truth is so important because it's so easy to find out if you're not telling the truth. It's so quick to make that turn of, or to lose validity or for people to lose confidence in an organization when they find out that the truth has not been shared. So I think it is an interesting moment in time because it's not just a generational thing, as you said, and it's not just the fact that there's so much technology at our fingertips. I think in some ways, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, in some ways we're getting back to the basics of it. Even though we have the sophistication and how we can communicate, what you just said is really the basic piece of the person standing in the arena giving their message from you know the Roman times that you have to be able to deliver it in an authentic and powerful way. Again, whether it's whether you're doing it verbally or you're writing it or you're you know putting a video up on your company intranet, there has to be a level of authenticity in how you're delivering the message. So I wonder from your vantage point, what do you see happening there? I mean, I think that we're still, I can tell you from the work that we do, we're still, employees are so critical and cynical and in disbelief of anything that comes from their organizations, what are you seeing that organizations are doing differently to convey that level of authenticity, to be truthful, to connect to people who by nature are going to be transient? Because as you said, they're not sticking around. What, what's happening differently now? I think definitely the rise of leadership communication. Actually, as leaders, they are realizing actually to run a good business and to be in a good place, actually how I present, say, do, write something is really, and visibility is really, really important. And actually, I think that the listening side of things is really going up as well. In terms of how we're then adhering to that in our profession and what we're doing is that we're actually thinking more so around, well, actually, what is, we talk much more now about culture. 
an environment. And culture is like this intangible dust that's in the air that you can't quite feel. You can't put it in a bottle. Right. But actually, it's about how do organizations lead, how do we create a cultural place? And I think it's all about how that, it's that behavioral piece. We're spending more time thinking about the human connection. And I think leaders now are not every leader. You know, there are some, and there's some people I speak to, if they, you know, a leader of an organization, well, they're never going to make the inroads they want to get because they just don't buy into it. But if you right. have somebody that really does buy into it and actually sees that, then you're really, and they are putting forward this thing, well, whatever it takes, whatever behavior change needs, how do I need to say it? How do I need to do it? How do we need to change that piece of copy actually to write that more authentically? and not make it feel like, you know, for example, when someone leaves the organization, you get that email that says, oh, we've let them go on to pursue their other interests. Right. They're leaving today. <laughs> you know, we all know what that's saying. We marched <laughs> them out with their, took their badge yeah. and took their laptop and cleaned their hard drive. Yeah. We but, let them pursue their other opportunities as we it. escorted them out the building. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think that and that's why I think we're in a good moment for internal communication, because I think that there's a click that is happening. And I think that's also because of the world around us. As you quite rightly pointed out, the way we can check and see if someone's telling us the truth is at the click of a finger now. We can find that out in minutes. Where people could hide those things, we're much more exposed, I think. So in terms of how we do that, we're actually thinking through from the beginning, like, what's the challenge? Where are we now? How are we going to get there? So, and what are the behaviors that we need to do? What's the values that we need to live? And what's the purpose? And rather than writing a purpose and just putting it out there on a tagline, how are we going to live it? And that's, you know, from the way we say thank you to the way we recognize, to the way we give a benefit, to the way we write our tone, to the way we're seen more visible. We're thinking it through on all those different levels more cohesively than perhaps ever before. So I, I think we have a long way to go. But I think, as you said, the shift is happening and the click is happening. And I think that that's also due as well. So we live in at the moment, let me use the word, interesting political times. <laughs> yes. That's a very, yeah. that's a you very have your, lovely we also way of have, putting it. <laughs> yeah. We also have ours at the moment. And, you know, yes. as, as humans, we have lost trust in our government. Yeah. In what we say, we don't believe anything anymore. And actually, leaders are behind, I can't just spout out this. I've got to see something. I need to get people connected to it. We say the purpose of internal communication is to enable people to feel valued, connected, and engaged. And if you do so, the organizational will succeed and it will have success. And without it, then you won't. And I think that people are tapping on or that's becoming more up the agenda. Customers have always led the way. But now we're seeing the link of customers, employees is, is actually so intrinsic. I get so all tingly when you say this because very it's a very <laughs> different, it is a very different approach. You're right. It was always customer first. And we just assumed, we kind of lived in this world where it was like, well, you know, you need your job. You get a paycheck. Like that should be enough. And obviously that hasn't been enough for a very long time. But this idea that communication drives the bus is kind of amazing because it has been such an afterthought. We just assume people could figure out how to do it right. And the idea that a leader could communicate was just an assumption. You know, if you've reached that level in your career, you should be able to communicate. You should, you should know what you're doing or, or that an organization knows how to support or to communicate to its employees effectively was so much of an assumption. And obviously, it's a big reason why you guys exist and exist in the way that you do, that that's not the case. I read a really interesting data point. I want to know what your thoughts on, on this. This was probably about a year or two ago. We were doing some research to try to quantify the impact of poor communication skills. And we found this data point that said that organizations lose $36 billion a year as a result of poor communication. And that obviously can be customers, you know, their stock crashing because they didn't speak to their shareholders properly, loss of talent, somebody, a CEO going out and making a really bad statement and then they get sued or whatever it might be. But, you know, does that resonate with you? Does that sound extraordinarily high? Do you see that that may be the case? It does resonate me. And 
It is high, but I didn't gasp in shock for some reaction. For some reason. <laughs> I know. I noticed there was no reaction. I'm like, hmm. Yeah, I was like, mm, yeah, it's high, but you know, that doesn't necessarily. I mean, we, we see examples me. of it, right? We see examples of it every yeah. day. You hear about CEOs making, you know, in a very yeah. basic level, making really stupid comments or absolutely organizations are going down. Oh. Because of that, you know, and we, it was funny at our conference last year, we talked about corporate reputation from the inside out and actually how actually what goes inside is now fundamentally reflected outside. But that really resonates with me. I'm working on a project at the moment where, like you, I'm trying to do the research to look at actually if there was a value framework for internal communication, actually what would those key areas be so that we could write something in a language that would you could put in front of a business leader and they go, I need to invest money in that. Right. Right. So, you know, the categories that I'm looking at is actually we, we talk about engagement in the UK a lot. We have Engage for Success, which was the movement that, that launched the big report in two thousand and nine. I think they have a stat that says that if you have a more engaged workforce, productivity increases by 18%. Wow. So we know that, that and they talk about, and that's, they came up with the four enablers of engagement. We're a partner of those, and I'm on their task force. And those four enablers are strategic narrative, integrity, engaging managers, and employee voice. So we know that's one area. But then there's also another area around customer experience. Actually, you know, so... I'll give this analogy. We have somebody who's, you know, talking about Harrods, okay, a very UK brand. Mm-hmm. When you're a customer yes. and you go to Harrods, you go there not to buy Gucci. You might buy Gucci, but that's not why you go there. You go there because you want to experience Harrods. Right. Right. Then if you're going to give the employee the experience, which is nothing wrong with this brand, but they're a different space of Poundland, the, the two aren't going to reflect. So what's that going to do to the customer experience and what's that going to do to the sale and what's that going to do to the profitability of the business? Mm. Then you have reputation about, you know, actually crisis management. Actually, what we say in a crisis is the biggest test of ourselves as an organization, how we handle that. That's the truth. It's really, really, really important. So how can we link that to reputation of brand? So how can internal communication rise the stock of your brand if it's an asset on your balance sheet, for example? You know, how can we link it to retention and talent? There's absolutely ways of doing that. So I think for me, it's about an an operational efficiencies. I mean, there was a great organization I went to meet with recently who did a whole, and I was asking them, how do they get investment in internal communication? And they did this whole thing, piece of work in their organization that they realized they were really inefficient because there was bottlenecks because they didn't give people the confidence to make decisions. So right, okay. And that was costing the business. So then they set out about a whole communication campaign to empower people, to make people feel that they could do things. And by the end of it, they were able to show they saved the business, for example, £2 million every year in operational efficiency. There are all those links out there, but it's, it's articulating, I think, that in a clear and punchy way. But for me, there's a sort of a key, key areas that we need to be looking at. And that's mm. something that I'm personally passionate and, and, and looking at at the moment. So that, you know, going back to my original point about wanting to be a voice for something. So if I can help articulate that, then that's something I'm really passionate to try and achieve. That's amazing. I think, I think we're both sort of living, or all of us are living in the same world of there are moments where it's so obvious to us how communication impacts what's happening in the workplace and beyond. And every day, I mean, again, yeah. in the United States right now, communication is under siege. And it's fascinating in a really not great way to watch. <laughs> it's not a wonderful thing, but it doesn't give me warm fuzzies. It doesn't give me warm fuzzies. That. That's true. Oh, no, I was, I was in, oh, yeah, I was in Boston recently. My, my brother lives in America. My sister-in-law's are from Boston, so I'm very okay with all this sort of thing. Yeah, it's you just, are up it's, to speed. It's but you you see this on a daily basis how communication is under assault because. We know the power of nonverbal communication, right? So you're, you're looking at communication across the board. You're looking at every mm-hmm. type of communication. We focus our energies primarily on nonverbal communication because we recognize that when you are in any kind of face-to-face environment, and, and quite frankly, even in this conversation where we're just speaking to each other, we're not necessarily sitting across from each other, 
we're still giving each other messages through the choice of words that we use and things like that. But we're so tuned into this and recognize how important it is. And then you see how people are disregarding the importance of it and diminishing the importance of it. And, and yet you can see with such clarity the impact that the communication and the communication styles have on the message that's being communicated. I mean, just in the last couple of days, it's been really interesting to see what's happened. You know, we lost the Senator John McCain and mm -hmm. how different people have reacted to that and how the president has reacted to that. And his facial expressions when asked questions about it have communicated so much. And I just want somebody to say to him, dude, like you're giving away <laughs> too much. And it's, it's really, it's fascinating to me and, and why I think it's interesting that we all probably share this is that we are so obsessed with communication and how important it is. And then you go inside of an organization and they're very dismissive of it. And they don't always, to your point, we're still struggling to find the ROI. And I sit here and say, why should I even have to explain this to you? At this point in time, you should understand the impact, even if it is somewhat intangible, even if we can't sit down and find the numbers. And, you know, I've been around long enough to know that the numbers matter, but we're at a point in time where it just seems so obvious. And the struggle is very real about trying to get people to really own the impact of, of communication and how when it's ineffective, how damaging it can be. And it's a big struggle. And I'm sure you experience this every day of your life the same way that we do. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the most frustrating things sometimes. But when the click happens and oh. you see that happen, oh, it's amazing. one of the most rewarding. I'll give you to one. There's another phrase that someone, again, I, this is none of my own. I've lived my life by borrowing with pride. As oh, I love said. it. I love it. <laughs> But there's another person that said to me, who's on, one of my board members actually said this, and I love this phrase, is that a lot of what we do is common sense. It's just not commonplace. Mm. Ah, and that's what that's makes great. it frustrating. That's, mm. But that's, that's the beauty of humans. You know, we're all built differently. I mean, obviously, Trump's never perhaps been to some of the best communication training classes. That, that, that's no, listen, if you actually watched him <laughs> on TV and you turned the volume off, it speaks volumes. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> With, without absolutely. it. I, and, I, and, I love and that. I think a lot, of, a lot of leaders, it's the same thing. I mean, if they're not trained properly, and some are. I mean, some are very, very well trained. And then the ones who are not, you can see, and I'm sure this is your life, right? You see those mm. who, I keep thinking back to your point about only 4% of leaders understand the problems that are going on inside of their organization. If they don't understand it, how can they speak to it? And if they're not well-trained in how to communicate effectively, they're stepping into landmines all day long because they're not realizing that in some ways they are really making fools of themselves because they're speaking about things in ways or writing about things in ways that are showing their own ignorance and their own lack of mm -hmm. ability. And the reality is, and this is, I think, where we completely intersect, is that we know that the next generation of leaders are not prepared with their communication skills. They don't have great writing skills. They don't have great speaking skills. It's not the skills that they were trained in. They probably could do great YouTube videos, be very candid, very off-the-cuff YouTube videos, but that isn't going to work because they have to understand the impact of what they're doing. It's not just about you know, speaking extemporaneously and saying whatever it is that you want to say or saying what you think is the right message to say, it's really understanding the impact of the message that they're delivering. As you've said, the emotion that it may generate or the emotion that's behind it, the tone, all of that. So I think, I think it's a very interesting moment in time to be doing what you're doing. Granted, post-World War II England was an important time too. We are really <laughs> seeing a, another period mm. of time where communication is so critical. And I feel like we're right on the precipice of it happening. And then there are days I feel like nobody is really understanding the importance of it. I would absolutely reflect that. You know, it's, it's, it's an emotional roller coaster yeah. um, working in this field in that way. And there are days when you feel like you're really making that breakthrough <laughs> and there are days when you kind of get pushed back a bit. But yeah. I do think we're in it. I totally agree. I think we're in the right moment. I hope so. 
I hope so. And I think that the, the clicks are happening. I mean, I can only say that as well from my perspective as an organization. You know, what we're going through is that members have never been at the highest. We've never had more people investing in, you know, training. We sure. have more people investing in understanding the neuroscience, the psychological engagement, culture, remote, not just how to write. So we are wanting to learn more. We're wanting to be better. And if organizations are paying for people to go on these courses, that must mean to my mind yes. that it's also rising up that agenda. So I think that, you know, I'm, for me, I'm really looking forward to it's obviously 17th anniversary for us next year so we can look at the achievements we've made in history. Sure. And how can actually we take back some of that going back to basics piece? Actually, you know, what did actually, how did we solve those problems back then? It wasn't actually about tactics. It was about what we were saying and how can we use some of those lessons. Yeah, some of the most effective approaches are the simplest of tactics. Yeah, yeah and common sense, I, right? Yeah. I love that phrase that you shared. And, mm -hmm. and here's to all of us trying to tackle that big goal of making better communicators, people feeling more confident, and getting an ROI on investing in resources and tools. And hopefully we're all on the pathway to making that happen. You know, I know we're coming at the end of our time and we always have these questions we love to ask of you towards the end of a session and really would love to get into your mind and know what you are listening to or reading. So back in the day when we had books on nightstands sitting next to our bed, <laughs> we've now moved on to podcasts and other things. What are, what are your go-tos over the summer that you're wrapping up or getting ready to start? What are you reading or listening to these days, Jennifer? It's an interesting question because I mean, I read a lot just generally on the internet, bits and pieces, research and reports. But in terms of I'm a, a consumer of a lot of different things, and I find actually listening to a variety of perspectives and sources really helps. But I think if there's two fundamental books that perhaps I have gone back to or think about is from a business perspective, I've always loved um, Simon Sinek's Start With The Why. I think that's a really uh, great yeah. book. I, I mean, we, people talk about it a lot, but I think that that's a question as well in confidence that we don't always do. We get so quick into the doing. We've got to get it done because we are living life like a constant to-do list in our heads. You know, True. we sit there at night and then we're constantly running. Actually, we're sometimes setting, stepping back and going, but why? Why yeah. does that matter to somebody? Yeah. Why is that really important? Why should we do mm. it like that? And, well, why isn't the business doing like that? And actually, because sometimes finding a way to pose questions that are in the right way can give you the information that you need to make a real difference. So I love that book from that point of view. Fantastic. A book that I read very early on, actually, as well. A lot of my friends did as well, which was about feel the fear and do it anyway. I love that book as well. I think that anxiety and social, because it's not about feeling the fear and jumping out of a, an airplane. I am never going to do that. That's never going to happen. <laughs> Let me be clear. Right there with but you, it's honey. About, <laughs> but it's actually about that fear, because we're so fearful of everyday situations you know, going for that job or actually walking in that room or actually just raising our hand in a meeting and, and thinking, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? Right. Really? Is that really bad? Can't we go for it? So I'm a big lover of those kinds of books to make me think, but then I do just love to sit there and just read a good old fiction book. Good for you. I love a good old, oh, a good old novel. I love a thriller. I Great love thriller it. It's my love favorite that. thing. Because actually, I think for me as well is that we need to give our brains a rest. And what I yes. love about books is it's yes, imagination. Give it a break. I agree. Give it a break. It's like you sit there and you just find this wonderful joy of imagination and take yourself off somewhere. My happiest place, beach, book, sunbed. Oh. Leave me be. I, I could like... We are two of the same people. <laughs> but I'm going to blame Tammy for something different here. My now go-to is to improve my vocabulary with a little app called Wordscapes. And it's frustrating <laughs> and I love it. But that's my little, that's what defrays all the craziness yeah. in, in my mind. But I love the Simon Sinek book. It's, it's really mm -hmm. a fantastic read. I think so. And I think that generally just consume, but I, but I like to listen and I love a bit of TED Talks as well. And I'm also that person that loves to like watch a podcast or a video about something really stupid or innocuous or something about history. Yeah. And I know it, or you just, or hear someone's point of view because sometimes as well, when you're social or you suffer with confidence or you want to be good in a, 
I've had to do a lot of networking and small talk can feel really the most scariest thing in the world. Oh, to it's go into a room. sometimes. And it can feel really painful. But it sounds silly, but listening to things like TED Talk or reading small things about history or facts sort of thing, you can, you can just give you small nuggets so you just look really smart in conversations. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I love all those just, I can things. fake like, it. I can just oh, fake I it. I can just pretend yeah. that I know things. I just Absolutely. saw this great TED talk and I can talk about that. Yeah. You're so funny. You're so Well, I think you're a lot smarter than you give yourself credit for, frankly. And I love what you're doing and I hope that we'll have the opportunity to work together in the future because I think we're Absolutely. we're definitely traveling down the same path. I just have one last question for you because I know that mm. people who are listening to this will probably care about this. Is there an affiliation with any organizations in the U.S. that you have? I've not heard of an organization like this in the U.S. I don't know if there's a sister organization or there's anything that you're doing outside of the U.K. with what you're doing. Sure. In terms of IOIC, we, the thing that makes us strong is we are dedicated to internal communication. We are purely about employee comms and how people feel. That is all we will do. We are not about external but we are probably the only one that's solely dedicated. The organization that we perhaps affiliate to in the US or have partnered in the past, who are bigger stateside, is the IABC, which is the International Association of Business Communicators. I know they do a lot of yep. stuff on internal comms, and we have had relationships in the past, so they're probably the ones that we've had the most relationship with in the States. But it was interesting, I, I went last year to Brazil when I was invited to speak at their internal comms seminar because they wanted that kind of focus. So I hope if I'm, you know, aspirations for the IOIC in the future, you know, in, the, in 70 years time, we'll, we'll become a, a more of a global organization or we'll certainly have more chapters or communities built around the globe. But we are sort of very predominantly UK at the moment, but that's slightly increasing. We're getting more interest overseas. But yeah, IABC would be the one that I would say from the United States. Great. Fantastic. Well, anything we can do to help you to grow and have more of an impact globally, we'd love to be able to do that. And we just loved having this opportunity to talk with you, Jen. It was super fun. So interesting. Love what you you all are doing. And thanks for taking the time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for opening up with us and sharing your story. We love it. And we'll stay connected for sure. Onward. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the chat. Yep. Us too. Take care. Take care. Bye. 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 